doing well tonight. I'm excited to be here. I'm thankful for what the Lord has. If you could please, if you have your Bible with us, open up to the book of John. The Gospel of John chapter 5 is where we're going to be this evening. And as you're opening, I just want to give a little bit of a, of a story. I was recently reading and finished a, a biography of a, of a missionary. Uh, uh, her name was Darlene Diebler Rose. She was a missionary to New Guinea. And I'm going to give a little bit of a, of a uh, annotate or parenthetical citation of that story. And I just want to read it uh, to you, if you for in this moment while you're opening your Bibles. It stated, after trekking a month through the nearly impossible New Guinea brush to reach the unreached aboriginal tribes, Russell Diebler, which was her husband, Russell Diebler was a skeleton of a man with a fungus causing the raw tissue to scale off his feet, leaving only open flesh. Now his wife, Darlene, was told to tend to his wounds by taking a tweezer and tearing off every single layer of flesh until only the raw throbbing flesh was exposed underneath that she might properly apply the healing ointment. So one morning while she was tending to his feet, Darlene wrote this. She said, Dr. Jaffray, which was one of the missionaries that were along with that crew, Dr. Jaffray walked into the bedroom and he saw me tearing the dead tissue off Russell's feet, the blood and pus running. And a wave of nausea passed over his face. And then he turned and without a word abruptly left the room. He closeted himself in his bedroom, and when I called him at noon, he said he would not be out for lunch. About four that afternoon, he walked out, and he laid a manuscript on the table in front of me. And so she says, I picked it up, and I read the editorial for our field magazine, The Pioneer. And this is what he wrote. He said, this morning, I looked at the, feet of a bleeding, uh, I looked at the bleeding feet of a missionary, and I saw his wife tending them, saw the blood and pus running from them, and I thought to myself, what a nauseating sight that is. But as I walked from the, the room, the Lord kept saying to me, oh, what beautiful feet they are to me. And then I remember, he writes, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings the good tidings. Good tidings to men and women like those in New Guinea who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Someday, he writes, it will all be over. Someday, the tired, bleeding feet of the missionaries will, for the last time, cross those broken bottle limestone mountains. Someday, for the last time, they will go down into one of those newly discovered valleys. Someday, for the last time, they will speak the message of redemption through Jesus Christ our Lord. Someday, that last one will turn to Jesus. And then the clouds will part asunder. And our Savior will be there. What a testimony. I want to talk to us tonight about bringing the hope of the word of God to the world. I love the theme of this conference this week for this missions conference. I love the world. But sometimes as Christians, we have to question our own selves and think, okay, our church loves the world, but do I love the world? And am I actively loving the world? You see, I believe that every person in this world desires some type of hope, both in a sense of wholeness and soundness in life and beyond that. And so today I want us to focus our attention here on these verses on two different types of hope outlined for us in John chapter 5 within the first nine verses. But as we begin to read... I just want to ask this one question to each individual that's in this room. How long has it been since you've been to the pool? I mean, we live in Florida, right? How long has it been since you've been to the pool? 
Let's begin reading, starting in John chapter 5, starting in verses 1 through 7. Our Bible states this, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. And when Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, Jesus saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? And the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. The first type of hope that I want to speak about this evening is a religious hope. A religious hope. Chapter 5 here opens up by telling us that there is this Jewish feast that's going on in Jerusalem it's most likely the Feast of Passover. It doesn't give us any real indication of what feast it is. Most likely it is that Feast of Passover. But what we do know is that in obedience to and fulfillment of Jewish law, came to Jerusalem at this time to bring God glory. In fact, Jews from every nation and province and tribe and tongue had, had gathered here, made pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate, to worship, to bring glory to God. And so Jesus, he was there for that. And, and after you read verse 1, you would almost expect something to be said, right? You would almost expect something to be stated about that temple place, about that feast place where all these Jews are gathered, supposedly worshiping God, all of the gold and the precious jewels of the temple, all of the lawyers and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and those that are of low rank and of high rank, all gathered together in this temple place, in this feast place. But instead of that, the scene immediately changes in our Bible. And we head over to a pool where the Bible says the impotent are gathered. Now the name of this pool here is Bethesda. That name might mean house of mercy. It might mean house of two pools. But for us tonight, the, the name of the pool, the meaning of the name of the pool is not important for us. What's important for us tonight is, is the religious superstition that was attributed to the pool by, by the gatherers that they had in accordance with it. You see, there was this widespread belief amongst the populace that this pool, and understand this is not like a pool in our backyard with chlorine in it, okay? This is a spring of water, essentially like a hot spring would be, just a spring of water. And they believed that there was this divine healing property within it. In fact, even history would tell us that Roman citizens themselves would gather at this pool for certain religious health ceremonies and rites and whatnot. And really, this is common practice. E even in the modern day, many peoples around the world will attribute waters with bacterium and deadly agents. They attribute those to demonic entities oftentimes, whereas waters with healing properties and, and all of those wonderful things are often attributed to divine beings and angels like we see here in this verse. And so you've got hot springs. People will bathe in them because at times hot springs will bubble up with, with, with rich nutrients and minerals that apparently appear to make one younger and healthier and all of those just wonderful things that we all want, right? What I'm trying to get across is that 
sometimes we think that people in Bible times were ignorant. Like, like they're gathering around this pool for some superstitious religious healing. But, but even in modern day, peoples today attribute these same types of things to these same types of pools. People today believe these same types of things. And so the Bible says that there is this spring called Bethesda, for which a multitude of impotent would gather. And they gather with this religious hope that if they can be in the right place at the right time, with the ability to lodge themselves in the water at that right moment as it moves before any other person is able, they would experience this complete healing, this physical restoration. The blind would see, the lame would walk, the sick would be restored. Does that sound like anybody that we know who can actually do those things? And so they believed that if they could just get in that pool at the right time, life would be better for them as the angels serve it. And I just want you to imagine these scenes for a moment. I, I mean, can you, can you imagine what probably actually occurred during those moments when that water stirred? You've got the multitude gathered, right? All waiting for that moment. And this isn't a, a measured moment. This, is, this seems to be somewhat unexpected. They're all waiting for that moment. And when it finally does happen, the pushing and the shoving and the venom and the hatred that must have spewed to all of those that were around them because that person got in there before I did and I want to get in there before so-and-so. And then the hate that must have spread because you got in there before me and I want to get in there the next time before any of you. The hatred that must have just spread over this religious, superstitious hope that these people had. Uh, understand, church family, that a hope like that not only is the pinnacle of what man can offer, but a hope like that never finds its source in Jesus Christ. Never finds its source in Jesus Christ. And you know, as I read these verses, I kind of wondered to myself, how could the blind know that the water was stirring? If they couldn't see it, how could the lame enter into that pool before anybody else if they couldn't run to it? Really, if we were to surmise from these passages and from what's going on here, the only ones that really had that capability to enter the pool first before anybody else was most likely the sick people. And so you can imagine how when, those, when that pool spring, uh, uh, bubbled up with those rich nutrients and minerals and whatnot, some healing must have come to some people, possibly, probably how that religious superstition began to spread all around the city there of what this pool could supposedly do when an angel came down and stirred those waters. And then the Bible changes its focus a little bit here. It, it, it changes its focus to a certain man that was lying by the pool. It says that he had an infirmity for 30 and 8 years, for 38 years, which I believe the Bible is indicating as to be paralysis. Okay, and so this specific man here, he had labored by that poolside for 38 years, waiting for his opportunity. And really, again, a great multitude were there waiting for their opportunity. All these people unnamed in the text were in that same predicament. Just a multitude of people waiting for the stirring of the water, probably purchasing food and eating near it, sleeping near it, just living a life of complete destitution as they waited for that golden ticket moment when the waters were stirred and they were right next to it and they can take that dip before so-and-so, probably decrying themselves to be those chosen of the gods because the angel decided to stir it as I walked by, right? And Jesus comes along to this man, 
And again, the Bible says for 38 years he had this infirmity. And Jesus says to him, wilt thou be made whole? And this man, if we were to continue reading throughout these verses, this man only had a halfway understanding of what Jesus was asking him. Yes, Jesus was offering physical healing. And we understand what Jesus had done physically for people in that healing throughout his ministry on this earth. But more importantly, what this man had failed to understand was that Jesus wanted his heart. Jesus loved this man and was offering unto him eternal life, eternal everlasting wholeness of the soul. But the man misunderstood that. And so he essentially he replies and he says this. He says, yes, I, I want to be made whole, but look at me. I need to get in there first, but no man will care for me. No man will lift me and put me in. And when I'm coming, when I'm using all of my power to get in there before anybody else does. Well, there's always somebody that gets in there before me. Somebody always gets in before me. Robbie Zacharias was a famous apologist. He passed away recently, uh, but he once told a parable, and it was a parable of a rich man who had this huge art gallery, and he had a terrific son, and the son would go into the streets, and one day that son befriended a beggar, and he started to see that beggar regularly, and he began to describe to him all that was in his father's home and all the paintings and all that his father had done in business. And the beggar came to really just like this young man, but one day that young man stopped coming, one day, two days, and so on, and until he found out that he had very suddenly died. And so that, that beggar, he went out and he got himself some paper and some crayons and, and he drew a portrait of that young man and he went near to the home of the rich man and he said it to the watchman that was at the gate there. He said, would, would you please give it to the rich man because his son was very good to me and I've drawn his portrait because I hear that he has an art gallery in his home. And so the watchman looks at it and he's, he's rather amused by it, but he just says, okay, okay, and he, and he shoves that beggar away. But he really thought it was quite the gesture. And so he waited one morning when that rich man was in his car and he says, you know, a beggar came by and, and, and he gave this painting which he painted, which is a portrait of your son. And so the rich man took it and nothing was heard and some years go by and the beggar finally hears that that rich man had just suddenly passed away himself and they were going to just auction the entire art gallery that he had collected. And so that, that beggar decided to see if he could get some nice looking clothes and squeeze in and, and he was able to make it into that, that, that auction there. And he walks through the halls to see if that boy's portrait was still hanging amongst all the grandmasters and sure enough it was there. And the auctioneer came and, and all of these aficionados with their wonderful little lenses and all this studying and all this stuff. And the auctioneer pounds the gavel and says, okay, we're, we're getting ready to begin. And just everybody, yeah, yeah, good, good, let's, let's get this thing started. But then the auctioneer interjected and he said that, that there's a condition that's left in the will. He said that the rich man had, had written in his will that the portrait of his son was the first one to be auctioned. And all this moaning and groaning just began to just come over the entire audience that were there. Nobody bid on it. And so that beggar, he put his hand into his pocket. He felt some change in there, and so he bid what he had. The gavel pounded, it was sold, and he comes up to the stage, and he collects what he had purchased. And as he's walking off, that gavel pounds again, and the auctioneer says there's a second condition left in the will. Whoever bid on the portrait of the sun gets the whole art gallery. 
church family, this world lives according to the rules of those aficionados. It is this religious hope that if my legs are stronger, if my sight is keener, if my disease is less debilitating, if my pockets are deeper than you, then I get to have the promised healing. Then I get to be chosen by the gods. Then I can get whatever I want in life. I get to have the whole art gallery for myself. That is how the world lives. That is how the lost of the world place their eternal bid. Whether it be in Vietnam, in South Africa, in Japan, in Pembroke Pines. And that is how the lost of the world, what they do is they gather at the many poolsides of the world, spread around the world, and they're just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for some supposed angel, some divine being to choose them because of their greatness and their goodness and their abilities which exceed their peers. That, that religious superstition that even if they are to receive what they want, even if they're given sight, even if they're able to walk again because of those uncapable, unable healing waters doing some type of thing in their body, even if they got it, the multitude unnamed in, the, in this text have long died and entered eternity. And whatever blessing they might have received in physical restoration, never, not once, followed them into the grave. Hope does not come from a pool. Hope does not come from a religious superstition. As Ravi Zacharias so eloquently proclaimed, when you get the sun, you get the whole component of meaning in life. Second type of hope I want to speak about this evening is the true and living hope. The true and living hope. That's found in verses 8 through 9. Our Bible states this. It states, Jesus saith unto him, that, that would be that impotent man, rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. As we stated earlier, the man completely misunderstood the depth of the words of Christ. This man was looking for some type of physical healing, but the Lord Jesus wanted his soul. Yet Christ in his goodness healed that man's physical state. He tells him, rise and take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the Bible records he was made whole. Immediately the Bible records he was made whole. I hope you're seeing what's going on here. For 38 years, this man laid by the poolside and nothing happened. Nothing came of it. There was no change. There was no help, no love, no compassion, no support. But one moment in the hands of Jesus and immediately, immediately, he was made whole. Powerful testimony to the goodness of Christ. Now, I wish I could stand here and say that I believe that that man came to salvation. But the Bible really gives no real indication of that. In fact, if, I, if we were to keep reading, and we're not going to, but if we were to keep reading, in my personal opinion, it, it, it would seem that at least in this man's, at, that, at this point in this man's life, he continued in his sin, irrespective of the power of God upon his life. But regardless of any of that, 
we know that Jesus knows his heart. And Jesus knew his heart. And so whether or not this man came to salvation, out of God's love for him, Christ went to this man anyway. And, and that is such a testimony for us that we need to go to those who we have little hope in. Because we don't know their heart like God does. And so when we see those, those, those people that we say, there's no way so-and-so is going to accept Christ. Well, how do you know? How do you know the testimonies of Christ in the lives of those that were so lost and those that thought they were so found? We have to go to the whole world. Amen? But I want to turn this lesson on its head a little bit toward the ultimate purpose for the church family here tonight. Because up until now, we, we've spoken about that false hope of religion until we've, re, we've arrived here at this, the true and living hope, which of course we know to be Jesus Christ. And we've been mulling on about these lost men at the pool waiting for their opportunity for a physical rebirth, so to speak. But I want us to know something so important, Christian. And I'm not speaking to the church family as a whole. I'm speaking to the Christians individually. You, ma'am, and you, sir, and you, sir, and you, ma'am, individually. Here you have this man for 38 years. For 38 years he was sitting by this pool. And the Bible says that a whole multitude were there with him waiting by that pool. And, and all this man could say to Jesus was, Sir, I have no man. I mean, we need to understand in verse 1 that a festival of the Jews is going on where Jews from all around the world are gathered together at the temple claiming that they're worshiping God, claiming that they love the Lord, claiming that they love his word, claiming that they have some semblance of love for people. But where was God? At this moment in time, where was God? He was by a pool extending out a hand to people who for 5 and 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years for lifetimes never once, never once had anybody from that temple left that place, any individual worshiper in the living God, go to them and pick them up and tell them of the only true and living hope. Jesus went. Jesus went. You know, we're not really given any indication of what else happened at the pool of Bethesda that day. But I do sometimes imagine the in-betweens of that scene. <laughs> Remember, the Bible says here that a whole multitude were gathered just watching the years go by as they waited for that, that golden opportunity, that chance. And, and then here comes Jesus. And for, for 38 years, this man that they knew was a regular there. They knew his name. They knew his life. They knew what it was about. They knew everything about him, essentially, because he was there for 38 years waiting down laying down paralyzed and in one moment he's healed i mean could you imagine the reaction of all those people themselves in waiting and they see uncle joe for 38 years and he stands up and he picks up his bed and he walks away i don't know what they did but i want to believe that many of them ran away from those hopeless banks and straight into the arms of Jesus. If you haven't done that tonight, would you do that same thing? Would you run away from those hopeless banks and into the arms of Christ?
Hudson Taylor is a famous name in missions. He's been mentioned a few times throughout this conference. Missionary to China, and I love his, his biography. I love his life. I love what the Lord Jesus did through him and in him in the nation of China. Powerful, wonderful work. If you don't know about it, I, I suggest you read it. But where did it all begin for Hudson Taylor? Where did it all start? In his own autobiographical account of that moment, he, he said this. He says, that he was unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their own security while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge. He says, I wandered out in the sands alone in great spiritual agony. And there the Lord conquered my unbelief and I surrendered myself to God for this service. I told him that all the responsibility as to the issues and consequences must rest with him, that as his servant, it was mine to obey and to follow him, his to direct, to care for, and to guide me, and those who might labor with me. And need I say that peace at once flowed into my burdened heart. The temple of God. The church of God. What does it matter, church family, where we find ourselves if the people of God are unwilling to go out from our own secure place and seek those out that are lying by the pools? So many of those religious Jews, from the least to the greatest, gathered together at the temple to worship the God who they knew nothing of, to honor the God who was not even among them. Now listen, church family, family. <laughs> Please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying don't go to church. I am not saying that all do not misunderstand me. Church gathering is biblical. It is needful. It is of the Lord to gather together collectively under his name. We have to go to church. It is important. It is essential. It's needful. But how often do we gather at the pools for the sole desire of reaching the lost for Christ? It's almost become robotic that we come to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and, and Wednesday evening. And every single time we leave through those doors and we look forward to a nap, we look forward to eating lunch, we look forward to maybe spending time with friends or family. But there are pools out there. And the impotent have gathered. And they don't have anybody to come. And... and, and Why does the where matter? Why does the where matter? Why does it matter if God is calling you to Miami or to Japan or to Vietnam? Why does the where matter? We, we need to be willing, as Hudson Taylor was, to leave our own securities, to wander out in the sands alone and allow the Lord Jesus to, to conquer us, allow the Lord Jesus to direct us, to guide us, to arrest us, for his service, to bring the hope, the only hope that is available unto mankind that has the power to pierce the darkness and make people whole. Our world is getting darker and darker and darker, and, and Satan has almost full reign to do what he wants because Christians are not fulfilling the charge. And, and it's not going to get brighter just because we hope and pray it will if we're not willing to go out and fulfill the charge. God has given us the responsibility to be the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of, of, of him and his word. He, he's, he's laid that charge upon the church and the Christians. So how long has it been since you've been to the pools? Church family, 
someday it will all be over. Someday those bleeding feet will bleed no more. Someday there will be no more pools to reach the lost. Someday every man's eternity will forever be sealed. Someday Christ is coming back. And we long and look forward to that date and enjoy and excitement. But as for today, as for right now, someone is out there. And someone has been out there for 38 years and they're crying out and saying, I have no man and God has commissioned you, sir, and you, ma'am, and you, ma'am. And those kids, when they get older, you know, I was teaching these kids the other day. And one of them said to me, I'm afraid to tell people about Jesus. Our children will grow up forever afraid to tell people about Jesus until we break out of our fear to go and tell people about Jesus. They will follow our mold, but they'll be even more worse off than we are. We need to go up to people at the poolside, extend out a hand like Jesus did, and tell them of the only true and living hope that is available to lift them up off that bed of sin and straighten the arms of Christ. Amen? So how long has it been since you've been to the pool? Don't let it be any longer. Saturday night, there's opportunity, amen? Let's gather together as a church so that we might gather together at the poolside of Pembroke Pines. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you tonight in thanksgiving from your word. And Lord, I know that the question on our hearts is, how long have I been to the pool? I know that's been on my heart. And I know that's, that's, that's touched my heart and, and caused me to really question my own motives and my own self and my own gatherings of what I do in life. But it's not meant as a, as a, to, to, to hurt anybody. It's just meant to help us evaluate our lives currently and how we can seek the Lord in the future. So that I just pray that in this moment in time, Lord, as you move, that the Spirit of God would arrest those in this room for service to Christ, to gather at the pool sides of the world, to do business with you and let you care for us. We love you, Lord, and we love people. We love the world.